Have you ever longed to don the armor of a samurai and charge headlong into glorious battle? Well, I can't help you with that. However, I can offer you a themed t-shirt that will probably serve as a conversation starter with every third person or so. Check out the merch store at ahistoryofjapan.threadless.com for exclusive shirts, hoodies, coffee mugs, phone cases, and full-length battle-ready katanas. Just kidding about that last one. Again, I can't help you there. Visit ahistoryofjapan.threadless.com today. Hello, and welcome to A History of Japan. Season 3, Episode 18, The Art of the Asuka Period. The Asuka period saw a considerable ingress of peoples from the Korean peninsula and Chinese mainland. Hopefully by now you'll recognize that this was not an altogether uncommon occurrence in Japanese history, as the Yayoi and Kofun periods likewise saw a healthy amount of what we would today call immigration. Two important points to keep in mind about this phenomenon. One, It ebbed and flowed depending on local circumstances in East Asia, as well as Japanese demand, a word I use only because there is no better one, and two, that to think of this in terms like immigration and asylum is probably a mistake in itself. Herman Ooms, in his excellent book Imperial Politics and Symbolics in Ancient Japan, makes it a point to use the term Alakthon, which simply means someone who comes from a different soil. I opted not to use the term throughout the podcast for simplicity's sake, but just keep in mind that the modern notions of statehood and citizenship absolutely do not apply to this time and place. I began by mentioning the Korean and Chinese emigres, because they were some of the primary drivers of Asuka aesthetics. Sansom describes the indigenous cult, as it existed before Buddhism came ashore, as simple to the point of austere. As immigrants brought with them various styles of pottery, painting, and sculpting, the native population eagerly emulated many of their techniques while naturally giving their craft their own spin. Once more, we must analyze Buddhism's influence on Japan, as many of those early foreign craftspeople were invited to help build the temples, statuary, and other such religious infrastructure which the Soga, and later the imperial court, were so eager to propagate. While Baikje tends to absorb a lot of the focus of the court's peninsular relations, many of the earliest temples bear more resemblance in design and layout to those of Koguryo. The earliest temples consisted of a few key buildings generally arranged in the same pattern. In the center of the complex lay the pagoda, a tiered wooden structure featuring lovely convex balconies and a spire at the top. The pagoda was home to relics, sutras, and other items considered to be magical. Directly north of the pagoda lay the middle golden hall. To its east and west lay the eastern and western halls, respectively. 
Around this set of buildings was a short, decorative wall. Other buildings would be erected outside of the decorative wall as needed, for example, lecture halls and other such facilities meant to accommodate both those who had sworn monastic vows as well as pious laypeople from the local community. The primary material from which these lofty structures were crafted was wood, harvested from local forests. Often statues and other ritual implements would be carved from a single piece of lumber, which may shed light on the story of Prince Shotoku carving an image of the four heavenly kings from a sacred tree he felled before the Battle of Shigisan. After the images were shaped and carved into their final form, they were painted in bright colors or gilded with gold plating. Arguably the most famous of these images was the Daibutsu of Asukadera Temple. Daibutsu is Japanese for Great Buddha, or Large Buddha, and the name is quite literal. It is a depiction of Sakyamuni, the historical Buddha, seated with his right hand raised in a gesture referred to as the Abhaya Mudra. Mudras are ritual gestures which were believed to have intrinsic spiritual power, and this particular hand gesture is portrayed in Mahayana Buddhism as holding up the right hand, palm toward the viewer. This gesture was believed to represent fearlessness, and Buddhists who laid eyes upon it would likely recall the famous story from Sakyamuni's life wherein an elephant charged at him. He held up his hand in the Abhaya Mudra, and the beast stopped, calmed by both the gesture and the serenity of the Buddha. For those who visited the main hall where it was situated in Asukadera, the image would probably have a calming effect. Many Buddhas in Asuka period Japan especially were posed to reflect the Abhaya Mudra. While I've already mentioned several times that much of the expertise needed for these buildings and sculptures would have come from emigres from the mainland, the Asuka Daibutsu presents an opportunity to put some names and life stories to this experience. The first name and story is that of Shiba Tato. According to different accounts, Shiba Tato came to Japan in 522 or 530 CE from either China or Korea. He was a saddle maker by trade, and brought with him images of the Buddha, which he placed in a personal shrine after establishing residency in the Yamato region. This was long before the official introduction of Buddhism to the Yamato court, and stories like Tato's are why some scholars will clarify that Buddhism arrived on Japan decades before that official date. Because horses were luxury animals generally only owned by the wealthy and powerful, Tato's trade brought him into proximity with some famous power brokers of the late Kofun period, notably the Soga clan. He seemed to have thrived in this period, as King Keitai granted him a title roughly equivalent to the head of a village, which is Suguri. Shiba Tato had a son named Tasuna, whom he trained in saddle-making. One of Tasuna's sons is remembered as Tori Bushi, and he was likewise trained to make saddles. 
To imagine that such a trade was a dull, straightforward activity similar to mass ceramic production or tanning hides is to grossly misunderstand it. Because saddles were the province of the wealthy, and because all people, regardless of station, appreciate beauty, these saddles were adorned with ornate designs carved from wood and then lacquered or gilded with bronze or other metal. At this particular historical juncture, saddle-making was legitimately considered a fine art. The Sheba family assisted their patrons, the Soga clan, in promoting Buddhism when at last the religion was officially introduced. The patriarch Tato helped recruit people to be trained as priests, nuns, and monks, while Tasuna himself took orders as a monk in the 580s. Toribushi's calling, however, was not to seek enlightenment like his father, but to craft the physical elements of Buddhist worship. He had already learned woodworking and metal casting thanks to his secular trade. Now he would begin creating images of Sakyamuni and Bodhisattvas. By the early 600s, he was not just crafting images, but principal objects of worship called Honzon. In fact, the name Bushi meant sculptor of Buddha statues. The Daibutsu of Asukadera is 4.8 meters tall, which is a little over 15 feet for our American listeners. Its face wears a smile of friendly serenity, and its overall style is often compared to that of the Northern Wei dynasty. This is particularly interesting, as the Buddhist art of the Northern Way was generally achieved by stone carving, while Toribushi mostly worked with clay, which he later used to create bronze molds. The other work which Toribushi is famous for is a sculpture of the Sakyamuni Triad, which, as its name suggests, consists of three figures. Sakyamuni sits between two bodhisattvas in this bronze statue, which today is housed in Horyuji Temple. It is a striking work, emblematic of Tori's style, which features unadorned but beautifully draped clothes, a slender form, and a hand raised in the Abhaya Mudra. According to its inscription, Queen Suiko commissioned it in 621 after the deaths of two high-ranking courtiers, likely to ward off the evil spirits that had caused their sickness. It was finished in 623, the year after Crown Prince Shotoku died. Enough other Buddha statues around the nation bear similar features to the work of Toribushi that we can comfortably name him an influential artist of his time, though some of the works which were traditionally credited to him have recently been subjected to skepticism. After the coup we refer to as the Ishii incident, the style of art began to change. Creative works from the mid-600s to the end of the Asuka period are said to belong to the Hakuho period of Japanese art, which, as you may have guessed, was largely Buddhist-inspired. While the previous visualizations of the Buddha had utilized a style inspired by the Northern Wei dynasty, the Hakuho statues took their inspiration from the Northern Qi and the Sui dynasty. The clothing portrayed on these statues was rendered in a much more complex fashion than those that came before, and often the bottom hems of Sakyamuni and his various bodhisattvas 
flared toward the viewer rather than to the sides. While Horyuji Temple was alleged to have been completed in 607, much of its statuary was created during the Hakuho period. Emperor Temmu, as part of his effort to gain a monopoly on spiritual matters which we discussed in the previous episode, founded Yakushiji Temple, which was dedicated to Yakushi, who is known as the Medicine Buddha. Finished in 680, Yakushiji not only housed some of the finest Hakuho statuary in the nation, but its walls were also covered in elaborate fresco paintings. Sadly, these frescoes have been lost to later fires, but some reproductions survived, and I'll post photos of these on this episode's supplemental post. The style looks very similar to the paintings found in China, and it seems likely that Emperor Temmu would have commissioned Chinese artists in creating the aesthetics of the temple given his fondness for utilizing foreign-born subjects to enhance his reputation as a pious and spiritual leader. Some Hakuho period art has a combative and even aggressive feeling that captures some of the more dramatic elements of Sakyamuni's story of achieving enlightenment found in the Mahayana Sutras. While guiding bodhisattvas flanking his sides were still a common choice, the four heavenly kings, or guardians of the four directions, begin to appear with greater frequency, guarding the Buddha from attack on all sides. Likewise, depictions of demons sent to tempt Sakyamuni during his final seven-week meditation were a common choice, which I imagine had a similar effect on its viewers as depictions of the crucifixion would have had on Western Christians during the same period. Holy figures who are made to suffer often carry the tangible appeal of reciprocal sympathy to people who lived through difficult, brutish times. Many of the artworks of the Asuka period still survive, a testament both to the hardy medium of bronze and to the restorative maintenance of their stewards. Just as the Asuka period itself would bring many lasting changes to Japan's landscape, both physical and ideological, the many wars, betrayals, and politics would not be its only lasting contribution. While this episode brings us to the end of our narrative portion of the season, there will be two more bonus episodes coming out next week, on Monday and Thursday respectively, so make sure you don't miss them. Next time, I'll read from the 604 Constitution attributed to Crown Prince Shotoku. Until then, you can follow the podcast on Twitter at A History of Japan, visit the online store ahistoryofjapan.threadless.com, and find us on the web ahistoryofjapan.com. Thank <laughs> you.